Our sermon text is from Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. And you can find that on page 496 in the paper Bibles. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to them at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Failure is a miserable thing. You know, failing is, is the worst. And it is especially miserable when it's unexpected. If you are a sports fan here, uh, you know that the New England Patriots have been on an unbelievable run for about 15 years now. If you're, if you're f- from this area, if you root for the Pats, you get, there's nothing to complain about. Things have been pretty good. But you might also remember that the Patriots were at the, the height of their powers back in 2007. That team was was incredible. They were the first team to go undefeated in the NFL since 1972. And back then, the season wasn't nearly as long. So this team was incredibly dominant. There were a couple of games during the season where they beat the opposing team by by more than 40 points. And those games were fun to watch. They were great. It was like uh, people playing a video game and one, one side didn't have a controller. I I enjoyed every minute watching that team as a Pats fan until until the Super Bowl. (laughs) The Super Bowl, I remember pretty vividly. It was February 2008, the same year. I was at a a church-run Super Bowl party. And as is often the case in our Super Bowl party, there were far too many Pats haters present in the room. The, The Patriots, who had been on this great run, they were in the lead till the last minute of the game, and then the New York Giants, who had lost six games during the season, they barely made it in the playoffs. They were this scrappy team, and with a minute left, they completed this incredible pass and beat the Patriots. I watched the video this week, and it still hurts. It still hurts to watch it. Failure stings. Failure is miserable, but it's even worse when you don't expect it. It's even worse when you think you're going to win. The Patriots had, I found out, trademarked 19-0 the day before the game. They had trademarked it. They were printing shirts. But instead, I woke up the next day and saw all the Giants fans ordering their 18-1 t-shirts proudly. Now, today, the failure that we're talking about is a lot bigger than a game. right? The failure that we're talking about is a lot more significant. But there was no less belief that they were going to be successful. These disciples, before they failed, knew for a fact that they were going to be victorious. In uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 26, it says that after they had the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn, and then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And hear this, verse 31. And they all said the same. All of them said the same. And then we get to our passage, two paragraphs later. And every single one of them has failed. Every single one of them has fled. So why is this story here? Why leave this in the Bible for thousands of years, for millions of Christians to read it and feel the sting? To relive this every year, every time we come back to this passage? Well, it's because this is not only the story of these disciples who lived a long time ago, but this is the story of everyone who would follow Christ. This is a story that, that shows us how to see Jesus clearly. That in order for us to see Jesus clearly, we first need to see what kind of failures we are. And not only to see it, but to embrace it. And so that's what I want us to do today. I want us to look at this moment of failure. I want us to look at this scene and I want us to see first Christ's strength in our failure. Then Christ's response to our failure. And finally, Christ's cure for our failure. So we're going to see Christ's strength in our failure, his response to our failure, and his cure for our, our failure. So let's, let's get into this. Last week, do you remember, uh, we were looking at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Steve preached this great sermon for us, uh, telling us about this moment where Christ is praying and he is in agony. He is about to buckle under the pressure of everything that's upon him. And, and Steve reminded us this was a moment where Jesus was showing us the fullness of his humanity. He was showing us all of his weakness. But here, this week, we see what happens next. We see the result of that prayer. And now, Jesus, that weakness seems to have, have faded behind him. Instead, we see a man who is resolved... A man who is resolute, a man who knows he is about to be betrayed, that he's about to die, and his mind is fixed on his mission. God has met him in prayer, and now he is determined, no matter what, to go to the cross. And so Mark sets up this great contrast with Jesus, on the one hand, standing strong, and everyone else falling. And there's three groups of people we see. First, we see his enemies. Look at verse 43. If you've got your Bibles, open them up, turn there. Mark chapter 14, verse 43. If you don't have a Bible, take one of these with you. It's, it's a gift. We, we'd love for you to have it. Um, it says, immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying... The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up and kissed him and said, and he, he came up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. So first we're looking at Jesus' enemies. And Judas's betrayal is 
sickening if you take the time to think about it. The kiss, that is, was a pretty customary greeting. It was like a handshake. It was a normal way to say hello to someone. But the Greek has this emphatic sense behind it. There's an idea that this kiss was more than just your normal kiss. This was an, an intimate kiss. This was the kind of kiss that only a close friend could give you. It was showy. It was a signal to the crowd that was coming to arrest Jesus. And so it's, it's grotesque when Judas kisses Jesus. This man was one of his closest friends. And he had sold away Jesus' life. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had someone who you thought was one of your friends become one of your enemies? It's hard, right? A lot of times when we think of Jesus' suffering, Jesus going to the cross, it's in these very abstract theological terms. And that's appropriate. There's a lot of theological stuff that happens when Jesus goes to the cross and in Jesus' suffering. But you should know, Jesus' suffering was also deeply emotional. It was extremely painful. Uh, Ariel, she read Psalm 55 to us. When David talks about the inner turmoil, that experience of being betrayed by a friend, it says, this is hard because it's not just an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me because then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within the house of God. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over him. Let them go down to Sheol alive for evil is in their dwelling and in their heart. Judas is weak. He is wicked. But Christ, by contrast, in this moment is glorious and strong. Because you realize, we saw how David responded. His friend betrayed him and he says, I hope you die. But Jesus, instead of wishing Judas' death on him, it says he goes peacefully. He doesn't demand that the disciples attack. Instead, these, these guys have shown up with swords and clubs. They're expecting a fight. And Jesus goes silently and is handed over. We see the weakness of his enemies. We see the weakness of his friends. It says verse 46. They seized Jesus. They laid hands on him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now John... In his gospel, he tells us that this man was Peter. Because, because of course it was Peter, right? If, you, if you're familiar with the stories about Peter, you know that, that Peter is the easiest of the disciples for us to relate to. Because he's a screw-up. And we're screw-ups. Amen? Jesus is, is uh, Peter is a, a great uh, proxy for us. And, you know, you, you think about it. Just a couple hours ago, we read this, the passage a moment ago. Peter declared that no matter what, he was not going to leave Jesus aside. He was not going to deny him. He was not going to turn from him. But that was then. And now, he's tired. He didn't sleep very well the night before. Jesus kept waking him up, trying to make him pray, right? Remember that? He's exhausted. He's hungry. 
The world's falling apart around him. There are angry people surrounding them trying to attack him. Now the pressure is on and it's a different story. Who can relate to this? I, I can really relate to this. It is one thing to want to obey Jesus when we are well-rested and well-fed, right? It is one thing to, to want to obey Jesus when things are going all right. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm going to, I will follow you on a Sunday morning when we're sitting in a room full of people who also want to follow the Lord, when we're, we're dressed you know, pretty nicely, when we're looking all right, when the, the problems of the world are outside of these walls. But it is another thing to stand in the face of temptation. It's another thing when you are worn thin by stress and anxiety, when you're tired, when you're hungry. And that's where Peter is. And when these men come in, when the men surround him, instead of going back to Christ's teaching, instead of remembering, turn the other cheek, instead of remembering, love your enemies, he grabs the sword and he starts to fight. He goes back to his old ways. What about you? Do you do that? Are you somebody who reaches for the sword? Well, I'll answer that question. Yes, you are. Of course you are. We all are. That's what Scripture says. Scripture tells us that from the very first moments, from the very foundation of the world, from the, the earliest moments of the fall, every one of us has struggled with the desire to take up the sword. Every one of us has that desire to rule, to domineer, to cut down, to defend, to destroy, to crush. Just think about how you are when, when, when your kids start getting on your nerves. Or when your spouse or your roommate does something that you don't like. Or when somebody cuts you off in the road in the middle of a bad day. Just like Peter, in that, that moment we abandon the Lord and we reach the sword. And maybe you say, no, I don't do that. I, I am not an aggressive person. I don't hit, you know, I don't, I don't yell. That's not me. But I'll say, even if that's not how you express it, you still do it. Because rather than turning the other cheek, what you end up doing is not obeying Jesus, but, but taking your anger and just pushing it down deep inside. And rather than striking out swiftly and aggressively, what you do is you do it passively. And you make people deal with that slow pain of your coldness, of your distance, of your indifference. We all do it. All of us, just like Peter. We take up the sword. And that's what we see. Peter, his first instinct when he is tired is to fight back. And he does, and he fails, and then he runs away. And not just Peter, it says everybody runs away. Look at verse 50. Pull it out, really. Grab the Bibles and look at it. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Say that with me. Ready? And they all left him and fled. Now, if you go back to verse 31, I can't help but see how closely connected these things are. Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Two paragraphs later. And they all left him and fled. 
And it's not just the disciples who fled. The third group of failures we see is everybody else. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What is that all about? Why is that even in here? Tradition has handed down that, that maybe this is Mark. Maybe this is the guy who's, who wrote this book. I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I don't think that matters, honestly. I don't think his identity is the point. I think what matters is the picture. This is the last scene of Jesus with companionship. The last thing we see is the last man running away naked. And maybe you still don't have the picture, you know, because we got a kind of a sexualized culture. When we think of nakedness, sometimes we're thinking of things we've seen on TV or, or in magazines. We're thinking of beautiful things. But let me remind you that the vast majority of bodies on this earth are not so beautiful to look at. This is a picture of a man running arms and legs and whatever else, flailing, flopping around. It's an embarrassing picture. It's a shameful picture, right? Think about how you feel when you're changing clothes in the gym, right? It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. This is supposed to be incredibly shameful. This is a, a picture of abject failure. It's surprisingly similar, too, to a prophecy that you find in Amos when God is talking about the coming day of judgment. And he says that in that day, there's not going to be anyone left standing. He says, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty will flee away naked in that day. Now, think about that contrast. Think about how we can see Christ's strength in our failings. We see the failings of his enemies who have betrayed him. We see the failings of his friends who have taken up the sword and who have run away. We see the failing of the whole world who is running away naked, humiliated. But left in the darkness, there is one man standing. Jesus of Nazareth. All by himself facing an angry mob who he knows is going to lead him to his death. So let's talk about how Jesus responds to that failure. Do any of you have unreliable friends? Everybody's got somebody, right? Everybody has some unreliable friends. How do you deal with your unreliable friends? Do you love them less? No, you don't, right? You just... Plan things differently when you hang out with your unreliable friends, right? You, you plan to go to dinner, but you also set up the Netflix queue, right? You, you make alternative plans. And, and when they don't show up, you're disappointed, but you're not surprised. And since we already talked about sports, I'm sorry to give two sports analogies in one sermon. Next week, I'll, I'll think of something better. I'll, I'll watch This Is Us or something, give you some balance. Um, the Red Sox. If you were a fan of the Red Sox before 2003, whenever they got to the playoffs, how did you prepare? You prepared for them to lose. You hoped that they would win, but you expected that they would lose because for 86 years prior, they had always lost. 
Now things are different. They, they seem to win pretty regularly. But back then, you were ready. You were hopeful that it would happen. But you were not surprised when they failed. And here's the point of all this stuff. My point is this. Jesus was not counting on the disciples in this moment. Jesus tells us very clearly, in fact, it was just the opposite. Verse 27, I already read it. You will all fall away this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew this was coming. And if you're a skeptic here this morning, maybe I'll just take a moment, a little aside to point this out. These guys that have all run away, these are the founders of Christianity. These are our heroes. <laughs> these are the people that, that, that delivered God's word to us. So this is a weird way to start a religion, right? Why even leave this in here? Why pass down this story of them being humiliated and ashamed and on the wrong side of everything? Well, you wouldn't do that, right? Unless, of course, this is what happened. Unless, of course, they wanted to show you this reality that they were failures. This is actually pointing us to a much bigger truth that we need to hear today. Christianity is for failures. Amen? Christianity is for failures. It's not a religion of good people who have found the right set of rules and started following them and now are becoming better people. It is about people who Ephesians tells us, apart from Christ, are strangers from the covenant and without hope. We're hopeless. We are miserable sinners. We are people who are desperately in need of a savior. We are people who slip and fall and we need somebody else who is going to be able to stand. And I think maybe there's somebody here today in this room who needs to hear that word. Do you know that God is not surprised by your weakness? You are, are not the, the 2007 patriots to God. <laughs> he is, was, was not expecting more from you. Sometimes we can get into this place where when we think of God, we imagine that he is scowling with us, scowling at us with disappointment. That he is unhappy, that he is second-guessing his decision to redeem us. But here's what scripture says. Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So first it says God chose us to be holy. So don't misunderstand me. God isn't rejoicing in your sin. He's not thrilled about your failures. But he is not surprised by it either. Because he chose you before the foundation of the world. So don't you think that maybe, just maybe, this God who knew you before the foundation of the world, this God who, in our passage today, was able to tell the disciples the night before they ran away that they were going to run away, don't you think that God might also know how you're going to struggle? 
Don't you think this God who used this failure to redeem all of human history might even be using some of your struggles in your life? That he might be using some of your failures to do what he's doing with these disciples, to show you how weak you are. To show you how much you need to depend not on yourself, but on him. I want to remind you today that God is not sitting on the throne looking at his children thinking, again? Seriously? I thought she was better than that. Maybe this one's defective or something. No, no. Christianity is for failures. We come to Christ because he is strong, not us. And so I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, if you are feeling defeated by sin, if you are feeling overwhelmed with your shame, with doubt, with whatever it is, there is no need for you to hide that stuff here. We are all in the same place. We are all failures. But instead, I want to invite you, expose that stuff. Share your weakness. Share those lies that you're believing so we can encourage each other. So that we can point each other back to Jesus, who is standing in your place, who isn't going to fail, who is interceding for you even right now at this moment. And if you don't believe me, let me just point you right back to our text. Here's how Jesus responds to our failing. He goes to the cross. For those weak friends who all just ran away, who abandoned him in the moment of his greatest need, do you realize in that moment, he went to the cross to pay for their sins? For that unnamed, unimportant man who ran away naked, who had nothing to add to the scene except embarrassment, do you realize Jesus went to the cross for him? Their weakness did not shock him. It did not disgust him. It only strengthened his resolve. It only made him more determined to go to the cross and free them from their sin by the power of his blood. Amen? Amen. Well, now let's talk about this last thing. Christ's cure for our failing. We should probably just sit in this. You know, we should probably go, go home and, and pull this passage out and read it again at home and just take a moment to soak in the scene. Jesus is alone at the end of this passage. The world has failed him. He is the only one going to face the enemy. And the last words that Jesus says before they haul him off, he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, as I do every week, I had to read a bunch of stuff to get ready for the sermon. And there was a lot of people speculating on what Jesus meant when he said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. What was that scripture Jesus was talking about? Some thought, well, maybe it's what he quoted earlier when he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's a verse from, from Zechariah. Or maybe it's that Amos passage I mentioned about the mighty men fleeing away naked. 
Or maybe, who knows, maybe it's something from Isaiah 53, talking about him being despised and not esteemed. You know, they're all right. That's all of the things that Jesus was fulfilling, and more. There's even more to what Jesus has to say, because in this moment, we need to see that Jesus is the last man standing because he is the only one able to stand. He is the last man standing because he is the one that all of the scriptures have been pointing towards. And this is the moment now, at this, at this night, before he heads to the cross, this is the moment when all of the scriptures will be fulfilled. You know that's what it says, right? In Luke, after the resurrection, there's a scene where Jesus is walking with the disciples and he's teaching them and he says he pulls out Moses and he pulls out the prophets and he says, all of this stuff is about me. This whole book, this whole book is the story of God's unrelenting, uncompromising determination to save his people through the atoning death of his son. The only one who could stand. The one who is like no one else. The eternal son of God. God the son made man. Jesus was the only one. He's the only one who could triumph. He's the only one who could face the weight of the world's sin on the cross. He's the only one who could endure the cross. He's the only one who could bear the penalty for our sin. And he is the only one who could rise again, triumphant, three days later. You hear me? Amen, somebody. He's the only one. And that's what I want you to see. As we get ready to come to this meal in just a moment. That this is not just a story of our failure. But this is the story of the cure for our failure. Yes. In this story, as we read the passage today, you should see yourself in Judas. You are the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. You should see yourself in Peter. You are the one who took up the sword in the time of anxiety and stress. And you should see yourself in that naked man running away. You are the one who leaves in humiliated Naked, ashamed, you are weak. But do you know that God does not intend to leave you there? Do you know that the message of our faith, that the hope of our salvation is not once a failure, always a failure, but now we have Jesus. Our hope is once naked, now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Once a failure, now chosen by God and guaranteed to be with him in eternal glory. It is once weak, but now filled with the Holy Spirit. And through repentance and faith, day by day, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Once dead to sin, now we are alive in Christ. There's this gospel song that I've been listening to lately. And it has this line that says, he got up so I could get up again. And I, I kind of want that to be our invitation today. However you might feel trapped today. 
However you might feel lost in your sin and shame, wherever you might feel defeated, I want to invite you to come to Jesus today. Come to him, repent, and believe that he got up so you can get up again. You're a failure. But if you have turned to Christ, if you have looked to him for salvation, then you are a failure on the road to glory. Amen. If you're guilty of taking up your sword this week, if you are believing those lies that God is fed up with you, come. Come to this meal. Repent of your sins and rest in the Lord's delight in you. If you've never done that before, if that sounds something like something strange and, and foreign to you, I just want you to know that today you can respond to this invitation too. If you don't know the Lord, now is the time. Come to him. Come empty-handed. Come to him weak. Come to him broken and let him lift you up. So let's come to this table right now. Let's come and, and receive his goodness and receive his mercy and be transformed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift that we have. And I pray, Lord, as we respond to this in faith, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would remind us that this word is not just theology, but it is for us today. In our very specific lives. It is for our church. As we gather around each other in our weakness, would we find your strength. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.